with that, let's transition into the word. We are talking about issues of prayer and preparing for prayer. And we're not really officially in Jeremiah yet, but we're kind of in Jeremiah just because my heart has been captured by it. And so last week we asked, do we know God? Our verse especially was, let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So this week, I want to advance that a little bit. Do we know God? Do we know his grace? Cheap grace is a danger. Read with me in Jeremiah chapter 3 about cheap grace. Verses 1 to 5. He says, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves or marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you've not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers like a nomad in the desert. You defile the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. So let's pray and we'll dive into this passage. Father, we ask that as we look in your scriptures, that we would understand with our minds, that we would grow in our hearts and we would apply it. Lord, that you'd help us to care about these things. And in this time, this season especially, to draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he's talking about cheap grace. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 refer to Judah. And he uses the analogy of prostitution. But they're looking to other gods, idols. They're looking to other nations to fill them up. And then verse 3, the judgment came, but still they refused to blush. Why? Because their hearts are hard. Instead of confessing, they kind of want to brazen it out and still insist that they're okay. And then especially verses 4 and 5 are intriguing. Uh, verse 4, they want to use the language of grace. My father, my friend, you know, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? You know, you're a forgiving God, right? And, uh, but they don't actually change. You do all the evil you can. And so we want to think about this a little bit. Do we do this? Do we look to money or friends or achievement to establish our self-image, right? To, to trust in other things to fill us up. Have we ever used God talk but then refused to change? Lord, why aren't you blessing? Have you ever used disappointment as an excuse to disobey? It's false repentance. So a little historical background. In Jeremiah 3, 6 to 10, we get the historical background. We won't read every verse here. But uh, verses 6 and 7, northern Israel has been unfaithful. At the time that Jeremiah is ministering, uh, Israel has been divided into two nations, northern Israel and southern Judah, and actually northern Israel has already been exiled by the time that Jeremiah is prophesying, and so he's using, he's referring to their history and saying, northern Israel was unfaithful. So verse 8, he says, uh, 
I just got lost because I turned too many pages, maybe? Yes. Okay. Uh, so sorry. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so he says, verse 8, I gave faithless Israel, northerners, her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. What is he talking about? He's using an analogy and saying, because of northern Israel's unfaithfulness, that's why she was attacked by the Assyrians and exiled. Okay, And so you see the analogy? The analogy is marriage, but he's referring to their history and saying they were uh, attacked by Assyria and exiled. That's the divorce, so to speak, breaking the covenant between God and Israel and the land. And uh, then he says... Yet I saw her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. And so, in verse 10, in spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. So in other words, here is how Jeremiah is framing this. Northern Israel quickly apostatized, the quickly combined worship of Yahweh with, with idolatry compared to Judah. Judah was more conservative. And so... Northern Israel is attacked by the Assyrians and they are exiled and that's the divorce and the idea is God is intending that southern Judah would look at that and say, wait a minute, we can't go the same way. We have got to stop and repent and be light to Israel and light to the nations, but they didn't. Now verse 10, when he says... uh, in spite of all this, her sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. Historically, and I'll give you that in a moment here, historically, they would be saying, wait a minute, what do you mean we didn't repent? Because here's what happened early in the ministry of Jeremiah. Early during his lifetime, there was actually one last good king in Judah, a guy named Josiah. And he had a fear of the Lord, and he was raised by priests, and when he's about eight years old, he starts seeking God. He's about 12-year-old. He starts bringing renewal to Judah. And a little later in life, I think it's about 21, they rediscover the book of the law, and he thoroughly transforms Judah, what we call a reformation. We call it a reformation because he changes the structures. Now, I think his heart was sincere. From what we can tell, he was doing this sincerely. He, uh, he cleans out all the idols. He burns down. Uh, high places where they committed idolatrous worship. He even goes up into northern Israel because Assyria now is getting weaker and he starts bringing renewal there and they, he sends out some Levites and priests to teach the law. He's doing everything he can to try to bring real, we'd call it revival to Judah. So he's reforming. Now, re- reformation is when you change the structures of worship. Revival is when you change the heart of worship. Whether old or new covenant, every lasting work of God needs both, right? It's not either or. You need healthy structures of worship to carry on and to disciple a people or a nation or whatever it is, right? But if that's all you have, and we'll see this problem in Jeremiah, if, if only a few are really changed in heart, you're going to have a problem. And so that's what Jeremiah is saying in verse 10. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. So most of Judah, when they read verse 10 or when they hear it preached, say, what? What do you mean? We've rebuilt the temple? 
We've cleaned up all the idols, right? We've got rid of all this stuff. What more do you want? Well, Jody did repent, but not wholeheartedly. And so Jeremiah is saying, what's the problem? They need true repentance. And we need true repentance. So Jeremiah is going to teach us several elements of true repentance. The first element of true repentance is confession. Now read verses 11 to 13 with me. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you've rebelled against the Lord your God, scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree, and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Now again, historically, look at verse 11. Put yourself in Judah's place. Northern Israel has been mixing Baal worship, which involved sexual immorality, with worship of Yahweh, and Judah has just had a reformation cleaning up all their worship forms. So then you read verse 11, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. What? <laughs> what are you saying, Jeremiah? Are you crazy? I mean, these people, you remember what they did? Why they got exiled? <laughs> right? This is supposed to shock you. Like, what are you talking about? Right? And then he says, so this is the message to northern Israel, and they're already exiled. Mercy, what does he want from them? Somebody help me out. Verse 13, what does he want? Huh? Yeah, just admit it. Just admit you've been wrong. Confession, we call it. Just admit you've been wrong. Why so simple? Well, think about your own fog of sin. Now, maybe, maybe you're more righteous than I am. But when you're going down the wrong road, do you know what I talk about moral fog? you know what I'm talking about? Right? You've got all these reasons why, you know, it's not quite wrong. It's okay. It's normal. Everyone does it. Uh, what are some of the other excuses? Uh, uh, you know, self-justification. I've got a reason for this self-deception. Confession breaks that. Have you ever wronged someone, like say your spouse or a close friend, has he ever felt it's really hard sometimes to just say, I was wrong? Because why? Because you, you want to say, well, but, 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 but you, right? You've got all this stuff going on in your head, right? And, 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 and I was really tired, and there was a lot of demands at work, and it's, you know, you got all these reasons, right? It's just, why is it so hard to say, I was wrong, would you forgive me? That's why confession is so powerful. Because it just, it strips away all the self-justification, all the excuses. See, true confession 
you know, accountability groups, right? You've been there, right? Well, you know, it was a really hard week, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was wrong. I'll, I'll tell you, in relationships, when you've been wrong, if you're 10% wrong, and the other person's surely 90%, the relationship's never resolved until you confess your 10%, right? Without justification. It's the foundation. Well, same with the Lord. The foundation of good relationship is honesty. God cannot forgive who you're pretending to be. He can forgive who you are. Yeah. First crucial step, confession. Name your sin. So will you name your sin? And if you need to, don't wait till the end of the sermon. Right now in your heart, just name it. Lord, I've been proud. I've been unbending, whatever it is. God is merciful. His message to those who will confess is he's merciful. So the first element in true repentance is confession. There's another element in true repentance. It's less familiar in our culture. It's called lament. Now, first, there's a promise of a new covenant. If you look at verses 15 to 17, uh, this is really big, and we'll say more about it as we go through Jeremiah. But he, he's referring to the new covenant coming ahead, and he says, Then I will give, your shepherds, you, give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. He's warning them. Things are going to change. It's not going to be an ark anymore. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. It's a new covenant, right? At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their own evil hearts. So catch that. All nations will gather to worship the Lord. So this new covenant coming, it's not going to have an Ark of the Covenant. It's not about that. It's going to be all nations. Now, this is a thread that's important. It's a little thread in this passage, but we'll see it, that the confession of the people of God is related to the nations. Why? Because Israel was not called just to get Israel to heaven. Israel was called so that they could be a light to all nations. So Israel is the Old Testament analog of the church. And so when you are figuring out how these passages are relevant to you today, recognize that Israel's role in the Old Covenant is the church's role in the New Covenant. And so God's call, he's called you, right? Paul says, if you're saved, you've been called. Okay, great, all right, I'm called. But you're called, just like in Old Testament Israel, not just to get you to heaven, but that all nations could be saved. So hang on to that thought. He'll develop it a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, uh, the content is clearly new covenant, but then God laments. Look at verse 19. I myself, this is God speaking, I myself said, how gladly I would treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, you've been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. 
A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading for, not of, the people of Israel, because they've perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. This is God's lament. But then he says, return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. And so in verses 19, 20, and 21, God wanted sons, you know, sons, daughters. He's talking about everybody. He, and he thought, well, surely they'll call me father. But they were unfaithful. So God laments. So here is God's heart revealed in the book of Jeremiah. God wants to bless. God's heart is to be a good father. That is the heart of God. And so when that doesn't happen, it's, there's this grief God laments the loss of this opportunity. Return, he says, I'll cure you of backsliding. Now, here is the key. Return, and I will cure you. That's grace. So understand, some people say, well, repentance is just doing the right thing. It's not quite right. Repentance is turning back to God, and he cures the things we cannot change. It's his power. So here's our great hope. If you are right now sitting here in this room and you know you're in bondage to addictive habits, the hope of the gospel is return to the Lord and he will cure those habits. It's dependence on him. Liberty to love and glorify God for all of us. We come to him and he cures us. Well, then what happens? Now, here's the part that we're not used to. Look at the rest of chapter three. It's their lament, their response to the Lord. Look at halfway through verse 22. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. They're admitting that idolatry is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our father's labor. Isn't that what idolatry and addiction do? That consumes the resources that have been saved up for us. Their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. Well, this is not politically correct, right? But anyway, we'll get to that. Okay, we've sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers, from our youth till this day. We've not obeyed the Lord our God. Now, for some of us, we're thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, shame, all these words, oh my gosh. You know, isn't confession enough? Is this works righteousness? No, this is what's called relationship. Now, think about this a minute, and pardon me if the illustration's a little graphic, but... Okay, guy says, or gal, for that matter, slips into pornography and says, oops, Lord, forgive me. Okay, you can do that, and, you know, God will forgive you. But if that male or female is married and they say to their spouse, oh, forgive me, does that feel appropriate? No. Why not? Because it's... it's the lightness of the response doesn't understand the depth of the relationship. Lament shows that we grasp the violation of the relationship. 
We don't lament because we get more forgiven. Confession does it for forgiveness. Lament shows we grasp what's really going on. Now, we don't do this in Western culture. This is more of a Hebrew thing. Verse 23, Lord, our false loves are a deception. Now, I'm just going to give you a personal clue here. For me, this has been one of the things that has set me free from sin, is recognizing that what I am being attracted to or seduced by is a deception for something real. And when you see that, you have a way to resist that trail. It's a deception. Verse 24, our disloyalty is shameful. Now, I know we have this whole thing about guilt and shame in our culture, and we have a very specialized use of the word shame, and I understand that, right? So I grasp that. But he's not talking about, he's saying, own what you've done and own that it's a bad thing. And then he says in verse 24 and 25, we've wasted our inheritance. Now, the person praying that way grasps that you have, so you have you, again, God's purpose is not just to get you to heaven, right? Jesus did that on the cross. Great, done. Okay, good. We're good, right? God has a purpose for your life unique to you for you to glorify his name, to walk out a purpose in your life. And he says, when I sin, I waste that inheritance. I waste all the investment in my life. See, I mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again. God puts you in a family. And some of you, he puts you in really great families, and some of you put you in really tough families. None of it was an accident. He has spent generations getting you right where you are now. Right? And that inheritance, we're not just talking money. Money's okay, right? But, you know, he's talking, there is God's investment in generations of forming so that you would be the person you are to minister to the people around you now. And when we miss it, we waste generations of God's investment to bring us to this point in history where 6.5 billion people are alive and we are uniquely poised to somehow help in the ministry to those people. Amen? Yeah. Amen? Okay, we'll work on it. Okay. So we lament our sin because we recognize the waste, the deception, and the shame. We're like, Lord, I do not want that. And that's where the sin, uh, the confession, gets a little longer, not because it takes a long time for God to forgive you, but because you in your own heart are saying, I want to really get this. I want to get it. So Lord, yeah, it's deceptive. I don't want it. It's, it brings a shame on your name. I don't want that. It's wasting what you've invested in my life. I don't want that. And when you get those pillars in your life, you begin to establish emotionally reasons to resist the sin that, it, that uh, attracts you. So the second element of true repentance is lament. One final element of true repentance is planting. Look at chapter 4, 1 to, one to 4. Um, he says, literally in Hebrew, if you will return... O Israel, to me return. Don't just go through a pretense. Again, he's talking to Judah that has this, they got this whole Reformation thing down. They've got all the sacrifices right. They're, doing, they're teaching the law, but their heart is not changed, right? So return to me. 
if you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then what? Then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory or worship. You catching that? Where are we? We're back in chapter 3, verse 17. In other words, this brings it out again. Why is it so crucial that they really confess and lament and change their lives? Not because God has trouble forgiving. That's done at step one. But because if they will get right with God, I mean, come on, the whole, all the nations will be blessed. Israel, salvation historically speaking, was the key to the salvation of the rest of the world until Messiah Jesus was born. And at that time, a different group steps in. We'll talk about that in a moment. So look at verse one. If they get rid of their idols and swear faithfully, all nations will be blessed. That's the goal. So again, the purpose of repentance, the purpose of really getting our lives right is because we are for a greater purpose. It's not just to get forgiven. It's so that you can take your part in seeing all nations experience God's blessing. And then, of course, verses 3 and 4 are agricultural illustration. We understand. But let's look at it. Plow, he says, verse 3, break up your unplowed ground and do not sow thorns. It's really do not sow to thorns. In other words, don't plant thorns. <laughs> Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done burn with no one to quench it. So again, break up the hardness. Don't plant thorns. And the circumcision analogy, remove what dulls you spiritually or else God's wrath, and again, why God's wrath? Because they're the key to the salvation of the nations. And so God's saying, if you don't repent, I gotta, I gotta do deep, deep digging. So what is that key? Who is that key person today in the new covenant? The church. It's the church. So what do we do? Well, earlier we said confess and lament, but now change, but in an interesting way. Remember verse 22. He says, I will heal your backsliding. Okay, great, God will do it, but what's my part? So in other words, let's think about this in terms of you've got some habits and you realize they're, they're not a good testimony to the Lord and you really want to change. What he says is, I will change you, but here's your part. Break up hardness and increase your spiritual sensitivity and don't plant bad seeds. How? What causes hardness and dullness? It's what we put our minds on. Thinking about lust, coveting, discontent, pride, worldly focus like that, or sometimes just a, a negative focus. Self-hatred, comparison, jealousy, or despair, hopelessness, self-effort. That's what causes hardness and dullness, some of the things. So the call is break up the dullness and the hardness and plant seeds for good results. 
So what I want you to do is we're closing this morning. Start thinking about what are the thoughts, the words, and the actions that increase your spiritual sensitivity. Just think about that. I'll mention a few, but you think about it for yourself. What are the words, thoughts, and actions that increase your spiritual sensitivity? It'll be you know, similar things, but maybe different for each person. What really helps that? So for example, increasing our awareness of Christ. Now, some people, they'll just stick a, a worship CD on in their car or in their office when they're doing kind of mindless work, those, you know, that part of the day, if you have it that part of the day. Um, or uh, uh, maybe given works of art that really remind you and draw you to the Lord, right? Um, truth that confronts, the, remember the deception part, truth that confronts the deceptions, and when you start to recognize, you know, I'm, I'm slipping in the same area over and over, what are the half-truths, myths, beliefs, confusions that are allowing me to continue in that behavior? And you confront that, find scripture and stick it on your mirror, right? Every day when you shave, if you shave, whatever, you know what I'm saying. Get, get it daily, truth to confront lies. Your Bible, of course, spiritual songs, books, again, art. What builds faith in your soul. Sometimes it'll be a book or a Bible. If you're looking for a book, ask Mike Wong. He's got all kinds of books to stimulate your faith, right? He's <laughs> uh, friends who seek God. There are certain people I like to hang out with because when we hang out, we're going to pray. We're going to seek God. We're going to have a hunger for God, right? It's, uh, it just helps. What helps you fight discouragement or despair? Here's the issue again. It's not just getting you forgiven. It's keeping you on point with your destiny. So if you are a little older, hopefully you know exactly you know, a little bit about where you're going and what God's doing in your life. If you're you know, college student, 20s, even 30s, you might be like, I'm still a little foggy. Okay, keep doing the things that bear fruit. Do what you know to do, right? Ask your friends, and they'll help you figure out your destiny, right? As we, we minister together, as we do things together, you begin to find out where the blessing is in your life, what God is doing in your life, and just keep doing that as you're receiving feedback. And, and so you want people that will help keep you on destiny, right? And so these are all kinds of seeds that we can plant. So a third element of repentance is planting. So as we wrap this up, false repentance is when you say the words, but there's no change. The big thing here today to recognize is that maybe for most of us in this room, the point of repentance is not some active violation of a command, but a failure to move forward in the way that God's calling us. And so just think about that positively. What does God want? What's one truth or action that you will take. So true repentance confesses sin, laments evil, but plants truth, faith, hope, and love. Do you really know his grace? If you do, open your heart, say, Lord, change me. When I invite you today, one truth you're going to focus on today, one action you're going to take today. Stand with me, let's pray. Of course, the larger context is three weeks of prayer and fasting. We invite you again to come Wednesday night to prayer. It was a great prayer meeting this last Wednesday, 6.30 to 8 o'clock right here. 
And uh, it was an amazing time, wonderful time. Uh, from young to old, kids, everybody. It was just a wonderful time. And uh, it's a time to, as a church, to refocus our hearts and say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you for myself. I want to I want to move in your heart, and if there is things that you need to break patterns, say, Lord, I want, to, I want to move into what it's going to take to be transformed by your grace. So let's pray together, bow our heads. Lord, in Jesus' name, first of all, I pray where there is addictive sin, I pray in Jesus' name. If you know this is you, just right now in your heart, just receive Lord, where there's addictive sin, food, pornography, uh, things we say, anything like that, Lord, in Jesus' name, we're praying this is the year, 2020, when we taste freedom, where there is your grace released as we sow truth, as we sow vulnerability and relationship to appropriate people. I pray this is the year of freedom. In Jesus' name. Father, for all of us, I pray your Holy Spirit would clarify where we can line up with your purposes, where we can, as we shared last week, so many had testimonies of sharing Christ. We pray fruitfulness around not just sharing the Lord, but, we, but helping people become followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would Position us in the harvest this year and help us to be attentive and faithful to that call that we would recognize where we're to be stepping out. Lord, we thank you for this time together this morning. We lean on your Holy Spirit. You are the one that changes our lives. You're the one that brings fruit. You're the one that heals our relationships, that strengthens our souls, that enables us to walk with you. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to fill and strengthen and bless uh, every believer here as we're on this path toward you. If there are those that don't yet know you, we pray draw each one close to you. Hallelujah. I'm going to pause just a moment. And if there is someone here that doesn't know you, know, know the Lord, and you're feeling like, wow, I think I need to get right with God. I need to come to know him and, and receive his grace. I'm just going to ask that you would raise your hand right now. You say, I need, to, I need to connect with God and get right with him. Yeah, okay. So Lord, we ask your blessing on each one as we move forward. We trust you. Work in our lives. Meet us this Wednesday as we come together to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.